Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. But the fastest sprinters are always the ones who generally have the highest maximum velocity. The major KPI in the 100 meters is, for men at least, how fast you are between 60 and 90 meters. So they think about hitting the ground with their foot as hard as they can. How do you teach relaxation in a conscious way? Ross, if you, if you find that out, can you tell me, please? So welcome, Stuart McMillan. Uh, this is a podcast that I've been uh, looking forward to doing for quite some time, and we've been, uh, I think, peppering you with lots of DMs on uh, Twitter and various different uh, social media platforms, because as we start the Olympic Games, obviously there's a huge amount of interest in the track and field events. People have called you one of the most celebrated uh, sprint and Olympic coaches in, uh, in the world at the moment. You've been involved in over 70 Olympians that have competed in seven Olympic Games. You've coached over 30 Olympic medalist, and you've got a couple of uh, potential medalists at this year's Tokyo Games. So welcome to our podcast. First of all, can you just explain to us where you work from and, and where you are now and, and your moves that you're, you're going about at the moment? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, first of all, for having me on. Uh, I own a company called Altus with my uh, two business partners, Kevin Tyler and Andreas Bain. And we're actually currently in the middle of moving from our home base of Phoenix, which we're or where we've been for the last eight years, to Atlanta, Georgia. So uh, looking forward to that. We're we're um, we're going to be full time in Atlanta come the middle of October in Los Angeles because Phoenix is um, is a little bit too hot this time of year. So I try to get out of there is in the summers. <laughs> So I'm uh, basing myself in LA for a few months and then uh, before we move down to Atlanta. I love the idea that on your uh, LinkedIn bio, you've got a very simple line underneath your name, which says, I coach fast people, which I guess just easily describes what you do. Um, tell us a little bit about your job and what it entails. What do you think your core purpose is in terms of getting athletes to be their best? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's <laughs> First and foremost, my role or any coach's role, at least at this end of the sport, is to try to improve the performances of their athletes. So that's, uh, you know, I, I kind of flippantly say that I coach fast people and I try to make them faster. That's that is our role. You know, the, the obviously the role of developing coaches is slightly different than that. But I see my role is as being pretty singular is just to is to try to improve the performances of them so obviously when we break that down there's there's multiple sub themes within that but you know that's uh, ultimately what we're trying to do is is get the athletes better because you know any athlete that comes and works with any coach they're they're you know they're relying upon you for you know a, a great deal of the the success or lack of it in their coach in their athletic career so there's uh you know, there's a lot of a lot of pressure at the on on the elite end of the sport for coaches, for sure. Why sprinting? Like, what's your um, formation story? Why are you why do you coach fast people and not 
endurance people, for instance? <laughs> That's a great question. It's I, I, I think I have a very similar answer to most coaches. I was a failed sprinter myself. I was actually, um, you know, my genesis story, I was a soccer player and I was a pretty fast soccer player. And when I stopped playing soccer, uh, I had a few friends who were sprinters and they convinced me that, you know, you're a really fast soccer player. Maybe you should come and try sprinting. And I found out pretty quickly that I was a really fast soccer player. <laughs> but not a not a fast sprinter at all. And I, I blamed the coaches. Um, so I started coaching myself. I think I thought that I could do a better job than the coaches that, would, that were working with me. I found out pretty quickly that it wasn't the coaching. I was still a bit, I was still a really slow sprinter. But I was always fascinated by power, speed, and and strength. And you know that seemed to me like it was more. I don't know. It was just more exciting to me than the endurance end of the sport. So, you know, it's, uh, growing up, I was actually more of a, a long distance athlete. I, you know, I ran a marathon when I was 10. I, I ran, uh, you know, it's multiple 10 kilometer races. I ran 800s and 1500s in junior high school and high school. But I didn't really like the training. I didn't really like the people who were doing those events and those sports. So I, I just, uh, you know, all my friends, like I said, were sprinters. So I just sort of, you know, fell into, into that world and then, you know, really got hooked once I started, you know, working with those athletes, you know, like I said, I was just fascinated by that end of the sport, you know, getting, getting more powerful, getting faster and getting stronger. So did you just say that you ran a marathon when you were 10? Or did I hear yeah, that? When I was was 10. Line? You yeah, did, you did that. Yeah, so you was, <laughs> yeah. 19, uh, the 1980 Manchester Marathon. And that was my, uh, my one and only marathon. Wow. <laughs> so now you've gone to the other extreme. I mean, that's, that might have blunted your speed for soccer, just the same. <laughs> my, my dad was a big runner. He was, uh, he was a big athlete. So, you know, growing up, I would, I would go out, you know, long distance running with my dad every day. So it's, uh, huh. you know, I was probably putting in 50 to 60 mile weeks when I was 10. Wow. That's incredible. So tell us a little bit about your philosophy around training. Um, yeah, I mean, that's always a challenging one, right? To put that into, into a sentence or two. Um, I, I'd say probably number one is you've got to earn the right to, uh, for more load in your program. So whatever that load is. So we have a, we, you know, we take a qualitative approach to everything. So if you, you know, if you define load by, you know, the speed in which you're moving, you've got to, an athlete earn the right to move faster, meaning they have to show that they can move well at one velocity before they move to a next, the next velocity. Or if you define load by the weight on a bar, the athlete has to prove or earn the right to put more load on a bar or more weight on the bar. So first and foremost, it's that. So it's quality and then quantity. So it's earn the right to do more, basically. And that's, that's you know, and then I... I spent 20 years coaching bobsledders. So I, I tend to bias more towards the strength power end of the continuum when it comes to developing speed. So that would be the, you know, a secondary part of my, my philosophy. Um, you know, the, you're the fastest sprinters are almost always the ones who, you know, this, this seems obvious, but it's not, it's actually not, it's not that obvious, but the fastest sprinters are always the ones who generally have the highest maximum velocity. So, you know, I tend to bias my programming towards trying to develop that component of the race. 
maximum velocity being more important than say speed endurance or acceleration. So that's where I start from quality over quantity and maximum velocity. So it's a speed based qualitative program. It's, it's interesting because it's, it's a kind of a nice segue into my next question. And that was, are runners or sprinters born or raised? Because I've always had this, having watched lots of sprinting and being at a couple of world championships and Olympic games over the years, you've got your pure sprinters, you know, you've got your, you know, uh, and then you've got your power sprinters. So I, I always think of Donovan Bailey as somebody who was a pure speed guy. Carlos is a pure speed guy. Usain Bolt, a pure speed guy. Then you've got your strength guys that seem to gain the, the, the speed out of the blocks quicker than anybody else. They've got the power to maintain a higher speed for longer. So maybe you could just explain, are there, am I assuming too much by saying there are two different kinds of sprinters? And are you just focusing on the guys that you believe are fast and you develop the wrist around that speed? Can I, sorry, Mike, before, before Stuart does a better job of it, can I also just interject and say, the thing that strikes me is that this might be a good time to define what these terms mean. Because when you talk about strength and when someone listening to it talks about it compared to Stuart, we might actually not be talking about the same thing. So maybe, maybe as you answer Mike's question, Stuart, we can actually talk about what is strength, what is power. And when you talk about speed and velocity, is it velocity of the joint movement? Is it the velocity of the athlete? Because I think that will give some clarity to these discussions. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's um, that's part of the problem in the sprinting world, um, where we're probably a little bit behind the times in uh, in the in the overall sort of track and field world, or even in the overall sporting world, where you know these terms have so many different definitions that it all they almost become meaningless. So it's you know. The, the way in which we, you know, obviously velocity is velocity. It's, it's, and how, how we define velocity is the maximum velocity that a human is actually moving at, at various parts of the race. So, so velocity of the entire system, not velocity of any joint or, or, um, or segment within that system. Um, now strength has been defined as, you know, strength endurance, like some, you know, a lot of people may be in the 800 or the 1500 meters will define strength as they have the strength to finish the race. Whereas where I define strength is strength is maximal muscular strength. So it's the ability to, you know, move maximal muscle, uh, maximal uh, loads. Um, so it's a little bit different there. Now, the way in which, you know, we typically break up uh, sprinting is you have, you know, you're accelerating your body up to a max velocity you reach a, a maximum velocity, we can generally hold that maximum velocity for a certain, you know, certain time or a certain distance, which is being expanded these days because of technology. And then we've got the ability to endure a certain percentage of that maximum velocity for a certain distance or time. So those are three sort of abilities that we're looking at, acceleration, maximum velocity, and then the ability to endure a certain percentage of that maximum velocity. And that's sort of how I, you know, break up my programming. So we're either working on acceleration work, we're working on speed work or maximum velocity work, or we're working on enduring work. And then there's obviously, you know, different segments within those three segments. So those, you know, there's a sub themes within those themes as well. Mm. So to Mike's question then, I mean, can one categorize sprinters into groups where some are more reliant on strength others are more reliant on 
for want of a better word, natural speed, whatever that even means? And it's, it's as I said earlier, um, you, you, you're almost always at a major championship. The athlete who reaches the highest maximum velocity will win the race in the 100 and the 200, almost always. Now, there's some exceptions to this, and there's, there's more and more exceptions the, the, uh, the more, th more towards a developmental athlete that you go. It's not necessarily the case, for example, with 14 or 15 or 16-year-olds. It's always the case in the 100 meters, especially in the 100 meters. Now, you may have you know, somewhat slight exceptions with a guy like uh, Christian Coleman. Christian Coleman is such a great accelerator. He's so far out at 60 meters that even if some of the other athletes say, you know, like you know, a great example actually is the 2017 World Championships where he was two and a half meters ahead of Usain Bolt and Justin Gatlin at 60. And Gatlin actually passed him because he had a, a much higher maximum speed. And, and because Christian Coleman reached his maximum speed earlier in the race. He decelerated earlier and was actually at a, at a significantly lower speed from sort of uh, 70 to 100 meters. So it's typically the athlete who's fastest between 60 and 90 meters will win. Those three 10 meter segments are the key. But there are some outliers like a Christian Coleman. And even if you go back to, say, Ben Johnson, Ben Johnson was still the fastest between 60 and 90. So it's yeah. uh, typically that's what you see. But there are categories for sure. You know, if I'm coaching Christian Coleman, that's his strength. His entire objective is to get so far ahead of the rest of the pack at 60 that no one can catch him. So even though that, you know, he may not have the highest maximum speed, that's not his gift. That's not what he's really good at. Let's really work on him being the greatest accelerator that he can possibly be and so far out in front of everyone else that no one can catch him. Now on the, uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, you have got somebody like a, uh, a Noah Lyles, who's got you know, incredible top end speed, but not a great accelerator. So you, you could try to improve the acceleration abilities of a Noah Lyles, but maybe by doing that, you might be taking away from his gift so, if, you know, for him, right. you would train him slightly differently. Whereas, you know, it's uh, and then you'll have other athletes that may not have may not be great accelerators, may not have, you know, incredible maximum speeds, but are able to, you know, endure those, you know, a high percentage of those maximum streets speeds for a long, long period of time. Think back to a Michael Johnson, for example. You know, it's a, he, he didn't have, he wasn't a great accelerator. He wasn't a great hundred meter runner, but he could endure 96 to 98% of his maximum speed for a long, long time. It's interesting. Cause I was, I was about to ask, and you've to some extent preempted it. Most people would say based on what they've heard about Coleman, for instance, that all he's got to do is fix that ability to hold the speed, but there's going to be a trade-off where fixing that compromises the thing that you were actually trying to capitalize on. So how do you as a coach balance? Um, because sometimes you will see an athlete who you recognize, actually, if we could just change this athlete's weakness, we would unlock a tenth of a second. So how do you know when you're looking at as a fixable problem as opposed to one that you should just avoid? Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that we talk about a lot. You know, we, we always see that, you know, pundits will say, if only he had a better start or only, if only mm. she had a better start or if only they had better maximum speed. That goes all the way back to Carl Lewis. If you remember all the talk around Carl Lewis, if only he could start, 
You know, yeah. he'd be, you know, the world record would be 9-6. Or Donovan Bailey even, right, back in 95 and 96. If only Donovan had a better start. And that's, you know, it's, it's, that is just a, a lack of understanding of these athletes' uh, individual gifts and what makes them good in the first place. Um, so it's, you know, to, to answer your question, it sort of depends on who the athlete is, where they are in their development, how much of a, a potential uh, problem their weakness is, and how much of a potential gift their strength is. For example, if I'm working with a 17-year-old uh, kid who really can't start well at all, and the, their poor starting ability is really affecting their, you know, their ultimate uh, 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 performance in the sport, then I'm gonna spend some time working on their acceleration ability. Now, if that athlete's 32 or 34 years old, and they're already pretty elite, and they're elite because they've got great maximum velocity, I'm probably not going to spend as much time working on their acceleration. So it's where are they within their, their overall development, but even further than that, where are they within the quad? So in an Olympic year, for example, I'm not going to spend a lot of time working on weaknesses. I'm going to spend a significant, significantly more amount of time working on their strengths. Because in Olympic year, I want them feeling really good about themselves and doing things that they're very good at. And then over the course of, say, even one year, when they are competing, so let's say in track and field from May through August, in, from May to August, the same, same thing applies. I want them doing things that they're really good at, they're really comfortable with, they're really confident in. So we're not going to spend a lot of time doing things that they suck at. Whereas in October or November or December, it doesn't really matter. So if there's a time to work on weaknesses of an elite athlete, you know, it's, it's going to be early in the season. So if they're, for example, they're a poor accelerator, I may spend more time doing acceleration work in October, November, December, and not as much doing that in June, July, and August. Yeah, I had a I had a great segue lined up, and your answer was so comprehensive. I've now got three options, but let's take let's take the one <laughs> you spoke of earlier. Was you you spoke about the phases of the race, acceleration, reach maximum speed, hold. Maybe just explain for for listeners exactly what those phases are, how long they last, when does peak acceleration end, and when does an athlete start slowing down? You know, one hundred. Let's begin there. Yeah, well, that's really interesting, and, and that's that would be a, an easier question to answer last year than it is this year because of the, you know, these these super spikes that everyone's wearing now. Um, okay, you you're know, teeing typically up, you're teeing up five questions for every answer. You're doing, but let's <laughs> well, just go with it. We can put that one in the parking lot and don't let us know. Okay, it. I'll put yeah, on, I'll put that on. one in the back pocket. Yeah, that's 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 sounds good. Typically, it takes athletes about five seconds to accelerate up to their maximum speed. So about, you know, give or take half a second or a second or so. So if you've, you know, you've got a, a young 14 year old girl, they might take, you know, it might take them 25 meters to to get up to their maximum speed. That takes so that's about five seconds. Whereas you've got an elite male, it might be 45 to 50 meters ish. You know, so the best in the world, the best males in the world will typically reach their maximum velocity in about 55 meters. They'll hold that maximum velocity or a very high percentage of that maximum velocity for between a second and two seconds. Generally, it's somewhere in that range and then slowly start decelerating over the course of the rest of the race. 
So it goes to, to, to show then, then the earlier in the race that you achieve your maximum velocity, the earlier in the race that you're going to start decelerating. So if you achieve your maximum velocity, let's say at 40 meters or 45 meters, which is when most of the elite females uh, achieve it, they'll hold it, let's say for two 10 meter segments, so 20 meters. So they're starting to decelerate from anywhere from 60 to 70 meters. So the rest of the race is a, is a slow deceleration. Whereas if you're a 14 or 16 year old male sprinter, you might hit your maximum speed at 30 to 35, hold it to about 50 and the rest of the race is a decel. So it's, um, you know, generally, and as I said before, the longer it takes to, to, to uh, get up to your maximum velocity, the higher that maximum velocity is going to be. And then the, the, the less of the race you're going to be decelerating. So Usain Bolt in the, in the world record 958 hit his maximum velocity at 72 meters. And he had pretty much held about above 98% of that maximum velocity the rest of the way. So that's, you know, a, a massive, um, a, 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 that's much better, for example, than the athlete who hits his velocity or maximum velocity at 50 meters is able to hold it for 70 and is decelerating the rest of the way. So that's why I say the, the major KPI in the 100 meters is for men at least how fast you are between 60 and 90 meters the person the athlete that runs that flying 30 the fastest will almost always win the race and with females it's you know you just slide that back 10 meters and actually 50 to 80. so the female that runs that 50 to 80 meter segment the fastest will almost always run uh, win the race similarly in the 200 it's the 90 to 120 meter segment so that flying 30 just at the end of the bend Chances are, if you win that flying 30 there, you're going to win. It's 90% uh, of the time, I think. Just very quickly, why is the difference there between male and female? Is it a power to weight issue? Oh, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different reasons for that. Partly it's, uh, you know, height, um, females, you know, say if you've got the average uh, female sprinters, five foot five or five foot six, so you've got stride length is going to be significantly less. Uh, so their, you know, maximum velocity is going to be significantly less. They're going to hit that, um, uh, maximum velocity significantly earlier. Um, so it's, uh, primarily it would, it would be, uh, height and, you know, that's, it's, that's somewhat counteracted by sort of a higher frequency of the females where your typical, you know, typical elite female sprinter has a uh, stride frequency of very close to five Hertz, you know, between 4.9 and 5.1 uh, uh, steps per second, where your typical elite male sprinter is, you know, even Usain Bolt was down under 4.6, but, you know, many of the, of the other elites are 4.7 to 4.8. So it's um, partly it's then there's just an energetics to that where you're taking more mm. steps, more shorter steps. So you're going to start fatiguing a little bit earlier into the race than where a male mm. is longer, bigger steps. And it'll take a little bit longer for them to, to fatigue. Mm. So the, the analysis, for instance, that you're referring to and talking about now, these 10 meter splits and when peak speed is hit, I, I gather this is relatively recent, that these kinds of uh, detailed acceleration velocity data points weren't known until relatively recently, or would I just, am I the one who didn't know them? Uh, I think we've got data going back to at least 88 on that hmm. and possibly before. Uh, at least, you know, worldwide data that's shared, um, shared across the globe. 
Uh, we definitely have data from 92 games and 96 games and then every every other games and, and major championships since. I've actually seen uh, uh, kinematic data from 1983 world championships. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it's it's not, you know, it's, it's not super new. Um, you know, it's uh, obviously our ability to uh, collect high quality data and mm. more high quality data has improved over the course of time. It's it used to be where, you know, that was, um, you know, there'd be a couple of, of, of scientists or science science groups on the planet that were had the ability to do that. And now if you've got an iPhone, you can do that. So it's um, our, our, you know, it's 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 not as as new as you would think. So when you take all of this data that you see, if you're looking particularly at younger athletes, are there markers that you can look at a young athlete and say, yes, that person has potential to be world-class at an age of 16? Or do you just look at how they're performing against their peers at that sort of young age? Yeah, it's, I'll preface this by stating that that's definitely not my area of expertise is in the developing athlete. I've worked uh, almost exclusively now with elite athletes for 20 years. Um, but what I will say is, is especially in the sprints, the number one KPI is you've done a really good job of picking the right parents. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't have the genetics, you just have no shot at all. So the way in which I communicate this to the athletes that I work with is your genetics will get you into the room. It'll open the door. Now, what you do once you go into that room is totally up to you. So you can choose to use those gifted genetics that you have or not. Now, just having the genetics is generally not enough. You know, it's, it's, we, see a, we see a significant uh, proportion, in fact, of elite juniors not really succeeding as elite seniors. And now there's, you know, there's obviously a multitude of reasons for that. Partly, and, you know, it's, um, and this may be a somewhat controversial stance, but partly is it's because of, the, of they've been so elite for so long that they've tended to take that gift that they have for granted and not really understood or you know understood the process of what is required to be an elite athlete because it's always come so easily for them and i've coached quite a few athletes like that who were really really elite juniors and just never really respected the process that was required to become and to continue to be an elite senior so it's and they just sort of burn out early the other part obviously is you know, once you once you reach sort of, you know, a pretty close to your ceiling, you know, I, I think the, the research shows you've got eight to 10, maybe, to you know, on the maximum 12 years to take advantage of that. So you've got your early developers that are that that are super elite at 14. You know, you're not going to expect that elite 14 year old to also be an elite 30 year old. So it's um, you know, there's obviously a lot in that question. It's difficult for. And I don't think it's been done really well uh, for us to identify an elite 14 or 16 year old athlete and say, this athlete is going to be an elite 25 year old. I think that's, there's so much complexity within those decisions. There's so much goes into actually being an elite performer other than just genetics. Yes, genetics gets you in the door, gets you in the room there, but all this other stuff that, that just sort of muddies the water is really, really challenging for us to be able to identify. 
you know, other than the, ob the obvious ones. Is he, is he tall? You know, what's his limb lengths? You know, how elastic is this athlete? You know, it's a, uh, uh, how, what's the attitude like? What's the psychology like? What are their parents like? What other sports do they play? Um, you know, all of this comes into those decisions, but I don't, I haven't seen anybody do a really good job of that, especially in the sprint world. We just, we just don't know. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So your, your teammates who told you that you could be a sprinter because you were fast on a soccer field also mis misdiagnosed sprinting. And the question I want to ask is, and, and, a, and a coach once said this to me, he said, so many people think that sprinting is running fast, but it's actually technically quite different. What, what is it that makes sprinting different from just fast running? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a few gates, right? And there's a, there's a, there's a significant transition between each of them. So just like walking and jogging are two very different things, but you can walk really fast and jog velocity actually be fairly similar. It's the same with running, striding and sprinting. So you can basically, those are the five gates as I, as I determine them anyway, walking, jogging, running, striding and sprinting. And each of them are kinematically very, very different. So it's, you know, from running and jogging, running generally has a much greater uh, ground contact time. It's, uh, there's a much greater emphasis on concentric uh, muscle action rather than eccentric or isometric as it is in sprinting. It's not elastic really at all, where elite sprinting is, is most of these athletes are just bouncing off the track. You know, think about it as being two different uh, densities of balls where a sprinter is a really, really hard, dense golf ball, and you're throwing that golf ball against the concrete really hard and it just bounces off. Where in jogging or running, it's a very soft, squishy, let's say a squash ball or a racquetball or something where you throw it and it just it kind of just, you know, there's a lot more deformation to the, to the ball itself. And it's just, they roll through the stride and then just sort of bounce off almost passively. So there's a, there's a significant difference in the mechanics, but also a significant difference in all of the dynamics that go into that. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the training that the guys do. I mean, I mean, we are talking mostly about 100-meter runners, and I know you do more than that in terms of the athletes that you coach. But what does a, a typical week look like at elite level for a top-class 100-meter runner? Yeah, I mean, you, you see, you know, we talk a lot about the differences in 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 coaching um, in all sports. But what you find, I think, is in most elite ends of the sports that there's far more um, things that are similar than they are different. So what almost every elite sprint coach that I know, they'll either do two or high quality sessions in the week. And then every other session around those two or three high quality sessions are about recovering from or preparing for the next high quality session. So those are, you know, there's a little bit of difference in those sessions and there might be a little bit difference 
might be some differences in the makeup of the high quality sessions, but generally you've got, you know, as I said before, there's the three themes, there's acceleration, there's maximum velocity, and there's enduring speed. And, and most coaches will write their sessions around those three theme, themes. They'll call them slightly different things. But, you know, for my group, for example, we'll work on, you know, one day per week, we'll work on maximum velocity work. And that could be anywhere from 60 to 90 meters. And we might do anywhere from one run up to say five or six runs, depending on where we are in the time of the year, but it's depending upon the individual and depending upon sort of, you know, what that, what that individual uh, requires at the, at the time. Acceleration work uh, is, you know, acceleration as by, is, defined as that point where it, the time it takes you to reach your maximum velocity. So, you know, for females, it might be 20 to 30 meters, 35 meters, maybe up to 40 meters sometimes. With males, it's, an, you know, another five or 10 meters longer. And we might be able to do between say five and 20 of those. So earlier in the season, a typical workout might be say 20 by 30 meters. Um, and then enduring speed takes all sorts of forms because then you've got, you know, at what percentage of your maximum velocity are you, are you trying to endure? So if you've got a 400 meter sprinter, for example, they're enduring a lower percentage of their maximum velocity for a longer period of time. So you'll train a 400 meter sprinter in that enduring speed a little bit differently than you will the 200 meter sprinter or the 100 meter sprinter. So if you've got a 100 meter sprinter, you're enduring 98 to 98, 99% of your maximum velocity for 20 to 30 meters and that's it. So that's your, that is the task. That's the entire objective. So I typically, if I've got a, a sprinter who only does hundred meters and maybe is not a 200 meter, doesn't, they don't double up. Very rarely will I take that enduring speed past 150 meters or so. So we might work somewhere between say 120 to 150. It could be anywhere between one repetition to five repetitions. And, you know, those three themes then make up the, you know, the, the quality work of the week. And we generally, you know, you uh, leave about 48 hours in between those three days. And the other days are a mixture of low intensity work. So what we call in the sprint world, extensive tempo, it's, it's called something slightly different in the middle distance world, but extensive tempo is running work at 70% of your maximum velocity or below and anywhere from say 1500 meters up to, you know, some I've seen some coaches do up to 3000 meters of that. So it could be say 10 by 300. I, that's, that's pretty extensive. I don't typically go that far. I might go uh, 10 by 150 or 10 by 200 or eight by 200, a very slow, easily, you know, easy rhythm, rhythmical uh, pacing. And then we'll have, you know, a, 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 um, you know, all of the, the supporting work that requ is required as well in the weight room with elastic strength, with other uh, mobility and flexibility work. And, and you, know, you throw all of these th things in a big stew and you arrange it and organize at the, at, at the end of that, we get a fast printer. <laughs> the weight training is particularly interesting. I was going to ask you, I mean, are we talking three or four sessions a week and do you, do those weight sessions on the same day that you'd be doing the, tr the track work or is it completely separate? You don't want fatigue. I mean, how do you manage that? Yeah, I, I, I typically do them on the same day. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we're, if we're uh, taxing, you know, the quote unquote, you know, let's, let's, let's really talk simply here, the neuromuscular system on the track, then we will also tax 
that system in the weight room where say we're enduring an enduring uh, so you know i'll give you an example if the if the weight if the uh, session on the track is an acceleration session and that takes generally up to four to five seconds of work we will pair that in the weight room with a maximum strength session where each contraction is between four to five seconds and and you know we might do say you know in the weight room let's say six sets of two back squats and that would be paired with on the track 12 by 20 meter accelerations and conversely then if we were working on maximum speed in on, on the track then we'll work with sort of dynamic strength in the weight room where we might operate at you know a lower percentage of our maximum strength but we'll move whatever implement implement we are lifting significantly faster and then you know we're working enduring strength or enduring speed on the track we'll work with some sort of work capacity or maybe hypertrophy in the weight room, depending upon where we are in the training year. Mm. So, so do you have, uh, like in many sports, they would have minimum standards for what someone has to be able to produce in the weight room in terms of strength. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing not because it sounds as though there are so many ways to put a weight session together. Um, many do. I don't. I, and maybe part of that is a self-selection bias that most of the athletes that I see are, are well above those minimal standards already. Uh, okay. But that also goes back to what we were talking about before about what the athlete's gift is, what their unique ability is. Mm. So I coached Andre de Grasse in, in 16 and 17. Andre de Grasse, when he came to me, was very weak in the weight room. But he'd already ran 9-9 and 19-8. So clearly he ran, you know, he was able to run world-class speeds mm. with not world-class strength levels. So it's, it's, it's understanding where these athletes unique abilities lie. Now there's, you know, and that's where we always start, right? So it's, we coach the athlete in front of us and we try our first question that we ask is what is this athlete's unique ability? Why are they good at what they do? So Andre was good at what he did because his maximum velocity was really, really high. His elastic strength was really, really high and, you know, a significant weakness and you can determine a weakness, but maybe it wasn't a weakness, you know, cause it didn't seem to affect his speed on the track was his maximum strength, right? He didn't have really that ability to move heavy weights in the weight room. It didn't seem to affect him on the track. Now <clears throat> that, that doesn't mean that we don't try to address that because maximum strength is an underpilling, underpinning ability for all the other strength abilities below it. So dynamic strength and all these other percentages of that maximum strength. So we did try to improve that over the course of time, but it's, it wasn't a KPI for us, or it wasn't on the list of our KPIs. It wasn't high up, hmm. if that makes any sense. Now, so, does, I, yeah. so to answer your question, yeah, I'm not a big believer in having these standards that you have to squat, say, 2x of your body weight before you do any jumping or, you know, it's um, at least not at the level that of a level of the athletes that I'm coaching. It might have a little bit more credence at the developmental athletes when, you know, it's a, you probably need a greater uh, bandwidth of, 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 of development of more abilities at those levels than you do at an elite level. Sure. Uh, final question, just on the weight work, is this old saying, form follows function. And I often look at athletes who line up, the, let's say the eight men or women in the final of the Olympics coming up, and you'll see 
whilst relatively homogenous or similar, you'll see quite different sometimes appearances, upper body bulk versus someone who looks lithe and lean. Uh, how do you as a coach know that you, you're getting someone too bulky as opposed to the necessary muscle mass in the upper body especially? Yeah, it's, this, is, this is a really interesting question. Um, so generally, we want athletes as strong and powerful and as, as elastic as possible, producing as high a forces as possible in as quick amount of time as possible in the appropriate direction while being as light as they possibly can. So all of that together is what makes up speed, those four things. And so it's, however, athletes are all individuals. They've all got brains that live inside of their skulls and all of them have a, a almost a psychological need, especially sprint athletes to feel like they have some mass and to feel anabolic and this, the, the musculature that they that some of them have in the upper body feeds their psychology more than it feeds their, their, uh, you know, ability to actually run fast, you know, their physiology, which is something that, you know, it took me a while to actually understand that, you know, there's, there's athletes that they just have a range of weight where they feel the best at. And regardless of what the science around what speed actually is, if the athlete feels that way, that's the most important thing for us. So I had an, I have an, an athlete, uh, his name is Amir Webb. Now Amir Webb, when he came to me in 2016, was 195 pounds. He was, he was pretty heavy. We got him down to 185 pounds. So we lost 10 pounds and he ran significantly faster. He ran 994 in 1985. Now, he was still pretty muscular, 185 pounds for a, a five foot 11 sprinter is still a pretty muscular, lean sprinter. So we try to get him a little bit leaner. And in fact, he, you know, he got down close to anymore, even though he's still moving the same numbers in the weight room, even though he was as elastic on the track he didn't feel like himself anymore so it's we had to put that weight back on so it's there was a big lesson in that for me you know the psychology of what the athlete is feeling and when they you know how they felt how they looked even when they first started feeling fast or first started putting elite performances together on the track is something that we can't overlook that's really important does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely interesting very interesting Yes, yeah, so let's let's move on to sort of anatomy of a race because I'm quite interested to know what you teach these sprinters. Sort of, let's talk about the hundred meter sprinters, but I guess it applies to all sprint events. What are the athletes thinking about in pre-race? In other words, how do you how do the athletes prepare for that pre-race um, sort of fire that they get going? The technique of getting out the blocks. How does that sort of work? And then what are they what are they telling themselves that they're running in terms of relaxing? And are there cues that they remember in their heads about how they should be feeling during a race? Yeah, again, uh, uh, very individualized, but there's probably some categories that we can speak of. Um, prior to the race, most athletes will be doing one of two things. They'll be trying to think about 
their one, two, or three KPIs, you know, the things that are most important from them from a technical perspective to try to execute over the course of that race. Or they'll just be trying to calm themselves down because they're getting too aroused. So, you know, it's, you, you got to identify what type of athlete you've got here. If you've got an athlete that's getting overly aroused and the breathing is going up and then he's getting distracted by all of these things that are going on, then we put strategies in place to try to, you know, downregulate them and bring them back together and bring them back and, you know, being mindful about where they are in space and time. So that's, I would say, 40 to 50% of the athletes exist in that space. And the other 40 or 50% are, are okay with that additional information that's present within a race and can just really focus in on those one, two or three, you know, cues, whatever, whatever you would want to call them. So it's the way in which I organize the categories here is you can either move down the track thinking about what your limbs are doing in space, or you can move down the track thinking about what your feet are doing on the ground. So that's two very different things. So mm -hmm. some athletes will have better proprioceptive feel for how their limbs are acting and reacting in space. And then you've got two categories within that. So let's, let's take, for example, that I feel limbs in space that better than I do feet on ground. Then I've got two choices. Am I thinking about what my arms are doing and what my hands are doing or what my thighs are doing and what my knees are doing and what my feet are doing? So that's, the, that's two ways that I categorize the athletes who have better proprioceptive feel for limbs in space. Do we now think about what the hands or arms are doing or what their thighs, knees, or excuse me, or what their feet are doing? And the other side of that is the athletes that are thinking about their feet on the ground. And those ones tend to be the more powerful, bigger, stronger athletes that may uh, produce higher peak uh, power within each stride, but it might take them a little bit longer to, to find that power. So they think about hitting the ground with their foot as hard as they can and pushing the track. So whether it's back, so you, you know, the focus or the cue when you're accelerating for those athletes is push the track back, push the track back, keep pushing the track back behind you. And slowly as you rise over the course of time, you're thinking about bringing that angle of attack into the track more and more vertical. And when you're totally upright, you're now attacking straight down. So you're cueing foot directly down onto the track, foot directly down onto the track, where those other athletes, that other category, they may be thinking then, rather than pushing the foot against the track, they're thinking drive the thighs forward when they're accelerating. So they, you know, coming out of the blocks, drive the thigh forward, thigh forward, thigh forward, thigh forward. And slowly as they start standing up, they're thinking it might, it might transition to drive the thigh up or drive the knees up. Or on the other side of that subcategory, it might be hands. Drive the hands forward, hands forward, hands forward. And as they move their way down the track and become more vertical, they're thinking hands up, hands up, hands up. So those are sort of the, 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 the categories, the way in which we try to figure out what makes most sense to the athletes. And then we're really, really simple with our cueing. It might be just as simple as that. First and foremost, and let me back up, it's about understanding who you are, who you're racing against, what you expect from your, your competitors. So if you're in lane five and you've got a great starter in lane four and a great starter in lane six, you need to understand that and understand where they're going to be in that race relative to you in space and time. 
So you're not distracted by these two athletes moving out of the corners of your eyes, moving ahead of you. So, because that will be something that if you have spoken about uh, these athletes and the information that's going to be coming at your athlete during the course of the race, it will be distracting. It doesn't matter what your cue is or how locked into that cue is. You need to run this race uh, uh, in your brain a few times. And so you're, you've been there before. And then it's much easier then to just focus on those one or two cues over the course of that 100 meters or 200 meters. Now, yeah. what a lot of athletes will do, or actually many coaches talk about, is, is they'll say, we don't think about anything or don't think about anything. Now, the problem with that is, an empty brain is just going to be distracted by the first, the first stimulus that comes into it. It could be somebody yelling out in the crowd, or it could be somebody moving ahead of you in that race. So it's, I think that's a big mistake. You've really got to keep your cues super simple, be something that you've, you've practiced over and over and over again in, in training and be, and have the ability to lock into fully in the, in that, in that space and time. Now then, it's, you know, many other, other coaches make a mistake or many other athletes will make a mistake of thinking about too many things. You know, think about, you know, if you're a golfer or some of the golfers that might be listening to this will be able to understand this really well. Yes. If you're addressing the ball and you're thinking about five or six or 10 or 20 different things, you'll do how's that swing well. going to look? Yeah, you'll do none of them well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You do none of them well. You just yeah. get, you know, you just, you know, it's a whole, you know, paralysis by analysis thing. If you think mm. about one thing and then just allow the system to sort of, you know, organize itself in the best way and best in the most efficient way as possible, that's generally going to be a better swing and it's generally going to be a better stride. So then it's just a matter of understanding what it is that your athlete best locks into that allows them to move in the most efficient way possible. And you're I discovering um, this in training, are you? I mean, this is the kind of thing you're constantly saying to athlete, that was good. What were you thinking? And then, okay, let's think about that a little bit more. Is that the process? It's, it's learned over time. Yeah, that's a hundred, hundred percent right. It's those conversations are the key to this. It's the, mm. the conversations are, it's asking the athletes, what was going through your brain at that time? And then mm. together coming up with a strategy to best understand how we can use that information in the future. So we'll, we'll proceed any workout with, you know, here's the objectives of the workout today. And let's, let's for example, take, uh, okay, we're doing a maximum velocity session and our objective on this day, on this uh, specific session is to do a better job of being vertical. So the cue might be, okay, just let's, let's think about as soon as your foot is on the ground of getting the thighs up. So the, the cue here today is thighs up, thighs up, thighs up, as you're going through, let's say a 20 meter high velocity zone. And then that, that could be my cue, thighs up, but how that cue goes into the athlete's ear and then mixes up with all of the rest of their stuff that's in their brain and then comes out and it's actually, you know, how it sort of comes across in their running could be two totally different things, which is why it is so important to understand what were you thinking about as you did that? I know we talked about thighs up, but what did you actually do? Is that the cue that, did that work for you? Did it not work for you? Did we, do we need to try something else? And it's that relationship between coach, coach and athlete trying to figure out what the best simple cues that the athlete can use at different, different parts of the race. So the, the principle is we, we have to put something in the brain because a brain can't be empty. 
That, that's I agree with that. Like I, whenever people say, "What what were you thinking?" Nothing. No, no, no. You weren't thinking nothing. You just aren't aware of what you were thinking. So then the question is, at what point do you, even if it's a simple message, at what point does it become um, the thing they get stuck on to the point of not relaxing anymore? Because I can see that a coach would say, "Don't think," because "don't think" equals relaxation. That's the that's the the, the premise, I guess. But guaranteed at the Olympics, you're going to see one athlete, and you see this from the front on shot. It's just they just get super tight, and they lose the form, and they lose the speed as a consequence. So, how do you teach relaxation in a conscious way? Ross, if you if you find that out, can you tell me, please? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> that that's that's the hardest thing in sprinting. But yeah. here's the thing: you look you look at head-on film of every 100 meter champion in history, world championships and Olympic games, and you're gonna see every single one of them gritting their teeth and every sinew in their body being maximally contracted to try to get to the line. It doesn't happen. Like it, it's, yes, we want the most efficient, uh, there's one exception to that and that's Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt was so much better than everyone else that he would just had, he was just, he knew. And it all, it's, it's all at that point, it's a very emotional and psychological uh, thing. You know, it's, it's, he was so much better than everyone else that he could just be at total peace in understanding that he didn't have to put every ounce of his being into striking the, uh, the track as hard as he possibly could. He could just float by everybody. That was easy for him. Everyone yeah. else, it's, everyone else, it's that, that's the challenge, right? How do we apply maximum force the right way in the right time while being as, and I don't like the word relaxed. Uh, I, pr I prefer sort of peaceful or fluid or with freedom because relax is, you know, try to try to hit the ground as hard as you can being relaxed. Well, you're just, you're just gonna, you know, you're just gonna fall into the ground. We don't really want relaxed athletes. We want them to be, I, I feel, and this is why I say it's, it's more of a psychological, emotional aspect is we want this freedom, this peace, where they are so in tune with how their body moves. They're so um, mindful of their surroundings. They're so uh, in tune with their mechanics that they're just, there's a freedom and peace and, and, and to yeah. how they move. That's sort of what we want. But yeah. you ramp up the information. You put them in an Olympic final or world championship final. You've got 80,000, 100,000 people in the stands watching them and a few million or a billion or so around the world watching them. And seven competitors all who want to kill them. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't. So it's the athletes who can do the best with what they've got while still, you know, retaining as much as they can about how they move. And, but not allowing that, that aggressiveness or that ferocity to overtake the freedom or their peace. Mm. You know, so the one, one, one thing that I talk about, and this is, this is um, you know, I, I, I key in on these, on these key words. And I, I, you know, when you're racing, I think it's really challenging to think about actually specific kinematics. And I think it's probably a better idea, at least in the, the, in the sprint events, of thinking about a feeling. You're trying to be a feeling while you're moving down the track. So in a hundred meters, for example, the first 50 meters or the first 60 meters, you're trying to feel pressure. 
So you're trying your in your entire system, your entire body is trying to apply as much pressure as you possibly can. So think about you, you know, you've you're you're an accordion or, or you're something where you're just you're pumping this thing up. Maybe you're pumping up a tire and you're putting as much pressure into this tire as you possibly can. And then finally, you can't put any more pressure on in that tire anymore, and you just let it go, and there's this freedom and peace over the second heart, second part of that race. And those two are, are very, you know, they're, they're interlocked. The more pressure that you can put into the track, the longer that you can put pressure into the race, the more freedom and the, and the greater the ability you have to be peaceful at the end of it. So those are the two concepts that I talk about. Applying pressure, and, you know, it might be apply late pressure, be really, really patient with how you apply pressure. Or it might be, you know, somebody who might be really good at the start. So I apply early pressure. Continue to apply big pressure, build, 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 and then let just let it go, and then just be free when you stand up. So it's yeah. it's. But having said that, that's like I said, that's that's the greatest challenge in this sport is how yeah. how can you apply that pressure in a peaceful way and still yeah. look like that you're relaxed and efficient. Right. You know, it's, it's it's why I it's probably why I love it so much. You know, it's yeah, you can sure, sure. you know it's the eight hundred and the fifteen hundred and even the four hundred is a little bit different. The hundred mm. is, you know, that is such a difficult thing to do. And, and it differs from athlete to athlete and uh, arousal level to arousal level, because the higher the arousal, the harder it is the harder it is to do that. And that's mm. why I have so much respect for, say, you know, uh, you know, a guy like Donovan Bailey, for example. And he sets a world record in the Olympic hundred meter final. People just don't do that. You know, that doesn't happen. And, you know, Usain Bolt, that's easy for Usain Bolt to do because there's no pressure. Everyone knew that Usain Bolt was going to do it. In 1996, there were six guys in that final that could win that race. Mm. So for his, you know, and you could see it, right? He's, you know, the last 20 meters is a little gritting of the teeth. But, you know, when you look at the head-on slow motion of Donovan running that race, and you could see the freedom of his joints and, you know, the pressure over the first 50, 60 meters. And then as he started to rise and, you know, you almost you saw peace overcoming. And he knew at 40 meters that the one, that race was run. And I've talked to him about that. He said at 40 meters, I knew I had it. And I just, you know, I, I, I could just uh, display everything that I've got. It was just almost a euphoric state of mind that he was in there. Amazing. Just the one thing that struck me is when, remember Usain Bolt obviously won the Beijing 100 celebrating and he got criticized for it. Certainly in that 200, when he came back a few days later, that was a max effort. And I've watched slow-mo that and you could see the sinews in the neck when he did that. So he wasn't, he wasn't always so easy. He sometimes dug deep into that non-loose relaxed state as well. It's just, it wasn't always easy for him. Yeah. And especially later on in his career, you know, it's, yeah, it's so the second half of his career, he had more and more. Yeah, he yeah, was more under yeah. pressure. He had more more problems with injuries. So, you know, he really had to fight in 2017. But you also saw what, how, you know, how that affected his mechanics. And he became a, a bit of an over pusher. He couldn't, how, how great does he look at when running that 958? It looks beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's just how, everybody's how we, just front side, and he's just bouncing. And, how, do we, how do we spot an over-pusher? What, what are we looking for there? Like, what is that? Oh, well, that's, I mean, uh, that's, I should have explained that better when you asked me about the difference between running and sprinting. Where, where running, you sort of, you know, you stay on the ground and you push behind you. Where in sprinting, you're pushing directly down. 
And, you know, if you look at a force tracing of a, of a sprinting stride, the elite sprinters are the ones who have much higher forces on the first 50% of their, of their stride than the backside, the, the, the mm. second 50% of their stride. Mm. Mm. And the more on the front side of their stride, yeah, it's yeah. much, much yeah. more vertical. And it's yeah. a bouncing, you know, I talked about bouncing. And so it's these guys that there's very little deflection of the thigh past the center of mass. You know, the knee comes just underneath the hip and it comes back up again, comes just underneath the hip and it comes back up again, where they you know longer events, the knees deflect behind their center of mass significantly. And the slower yeah. you're moving, or it has to deflect behind the center of mass. So that's that's a big difference yeah. there. It's just much more. Well, I know for okay. sure when I'm watching the 100 now and they show the side on replay, I know what I'm going to be looking at, which I wasn't before. A uh, couple of couple of other questions, just very quickly. Um, 200 and 400. I mean, in the 400, we're, we're sort of biased in South Africa because we've got a guy who we hope medals. You spoke earlier about the 200 is predicted by who hits max speed between 90 and 120, which struck me as interesting because... I've always thought that the 200 has to be paced in the sense that if you go flat out, you'll, you'll run the last 60 meters in, in, in treacle. You'll be going backwards. So th th it's interesting to me to hear you say that actually you just got to get to 120 super fast. Well, not, not get to 120 super fast, but, tr but cover 90 to 120 super fast. So that 30 so, okay. meter segment at the end you. of the bend is the primary KPI. There's, so there's only two ways to run a... Yeah, there's, there's so, only two yeah. ways to run a 200 meter well. Yeah, there's, and, there's and two that, ways. And they are? And that's it. <laughs> there's one is you can run it as a bit of a buildup. So you come out a little bit submaximal and you build and you build and you build and you build and through 90 to 120, you're going as fast as you can and you try and hold on for as long as you can. The second way is you push out as hard as you can and you take a bit of a break in the middle of the bend. So you might take your first 40 meters is as hard as possible. Your second 40 meters is you're just sort of, let's say you've gone through four gears to get to 40 meters and you stay in fourth gear for 40 meters. And then you, do, then you shift into fifth gear and sixth gear at the mm. end of the bend and come off. Right. Those are the only two ways. What one, you know, the, the, the way that you described going as fast as you possibly can, that's not a good way to do it. You're no, right. that could, that's a disaster. Someone that. will do that, but they'll finish last. <laughs> so so, so it's, it's within the context of pacing. You want to be able to accelerate from 90 to 100 and, and cover that as quick as possible. Got it. Yeah, the 90 and to 120 meter segment right at the end of the bend where it, where it yeah. transitions from running a bend onto a straight. The person that's moving the fastest at that point will generally yeah. win the race. Just, yeah, well, it'll it. be... Uh, and very quickly, the 400? I'm sure more ways, well, it's to, interesting, more right? ways so, to construct it and more ways to mess it up as well. But, there, uh, there is. There's, there's, there's more ways to run it well. There's more ways to run it uh, poorly. But as we're seeing more and more over the last few years are generally your maximum velocity is still your primary KPI. You know, look at Wade. Wade's ran 9.94 and 19.8. Uh, or it was a 19.7 even. So he's... Um, you know, or, you know, uh, LaShawn Merritt or uh, Michael Norman and uh, Fred Curley. You know, you know, maximum velocity still is your primary KPI here. Now, it, it's, it's not the only KPI. It's your ability to endure high percentages of, it, of that maximum velocity is still probably the highest KPI here. But the higher your maximum velocity is, the greater your, sp your speed reserve and the easier yeah. it is that you can go through these different phases in the 400. So as, as we know, and I know you've spoken a lot about that for the 800, it's the same for the four, you know, so it's, but that doesn't mean that, 
max and velocity is the only thing that matters. It's still the guys that can uh, maintain high percentages of that maximum velocity for a long period of time, which are the best. And that's where Wade comes in. Wade at his best is super fast and it just runs so rhythmically smooth. He's so efficient. He's mm -hmm. so, you know, you just look at him when he's looking great and he just, you know, the peace in his, you can just see it, right? He's just so free, you know, the world record run. It's even though it's a, that's, that's the fastest any human has ever run a 400 meters. He still looked pretty relaxed, you know, and pretty, you know, very smooth throughout the entirety of that run. That's what he's got going for him that no one else does. You know, Michael Norman's pretty good at that, but nobody's as good as Wade at just really being able to put it together and be, you know, be so purposeful and so confident with his ability to, to, to do that, that he can just be so smooth while he does it. As a, as a coach, have you ever seen an athlete suffer an ACL and come back? I'm, I'm just curious about your thoughts about that with, with Finnick specifically now. Um, it's it's English so rare, a sprinter. Yeah, yeah, it's very rare. So English yeah. Gardner uh, tore her ACL and came back mm -hmm. less than a year later and ran very, very fast. So, okay. um, and that was in a hundred. Um, mm. That's the, that's, yeah, it's very rare. That's, that's the only time I've, I've ever seen I mean, you, you, you see it in contact sports. Rugby has many of them, AFL, I'm sure NFL, but, but you're never testing that machine <laughs> to the extent that a, a sprinter tests it. So we've had a few questions about that on the pod. So I thought I would take a shot and, and ask you about it to get your coaching. Yeah. Inside. I mean, that's, that's, that's the difference between team sports and track and field. So a team sport is how well that you can maximize the first 90% of your ability because very rarely are you actually, you know, you, you need to worry, even worry about operating above 90%. Very rarely are you even there where track and field, if you're not 98% of what you're capable of doing, you might as well not even show yeah. up on the track. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's, you, you know, you'll, you'll never have any rugby player or soccer player or, you know, ever operating at 99% of their, of their total capability. It just doesn't happen because of the nature of those sports. We're in track and field. If you're not there, then you're not making the Olympic team. That's the game, yeah. Jared, so you touched very briefly at the start of the podcast on the effect of these new super shoes now that we're seeing not only in road running, but now moving on to the track. Just give us a, an, an insider's view on, on your thoughts around the super shoes and the impact it's had on sprinting. Um, so a caveat, I, I'm not fully... Uh, I haven't seen a lot of the in-house research that Nike and Puma have done here. I've seen some of it. Uh, so much of my thoughts here is anecdotal, as well as what colleagues and myself have done on the track with you know, our own sort of pseudo testing, not laboratory testing. It's yeah. probably uh, from a maximum velocity standpoint, it looks like it's across the board with almost all athletes leading to improvements of three to 4%, which is wow. pretty similar to actually those marathon shoes, right? Yeah. So, which is really interesting. Uh, the, I think the vapor fly was, was four to 5% or whatever. So it's, um, but we're looking at, you know, 3% for most, most athletes. If you're really a, you know, a, a high responder to this, these shoes, then it's, it's a bit more than that. But there's also athletes on the other end that don't respond to them well at all. And I'm not right. seeing any improvement or even a, uh, a decrement in their performance, which is really interesting. And what we're seeing, you know, because it's a higher now maximum velocity, we're also seeing them reach that high maximum velocity later in the races. 
And then this is the most interesting thing for me is that I don't, I don't really have a thought on this yet is athletes are able to retain a higher percentage of that maximum velocity for a significantly longer period of time. The feedback they were getting from the athletes is they just bouncing along. They can hit this maximum velocity and they feel like it's no longer an, an effort to retain it or maintain it. They can just sort of stay there. I mean, so whereas, 3%, 3, 3% is astonishing that, you know, if context, that's three tenths in a 10 second, hundred meter, it's six tenths in a 20 second, 200. I, I was actually, I, I, I think, I don't know if I audibly gasped, but I gasped inside when you said 3%, I was thinking 1%. No, well, well 3% at maximum velocity. So not necessarily 3% ah, okay, right. over the course of the entire race. So if okay, an athlete makes a yeah, so now if an athlete yeah. runs a 10-meter segment in 0.90, 3% of that would be 3,000, so they'd be able to run it in 0 0.087 uh, rather than uh, 0.90. Right, and they don't necessarily sum because what happens in the first sort of 30, right. 40 meters of the race isn't benefited from the shoe. So that, that, that helps. I'm glad I clarified that. Uh, yeah. My first thought about the, the retention of speed is part of the loss of speed in a sprint in those last 20 meters is neuromuscular fatigue at the tendon, right? And it strikes me that carbon, stiff carbon doesn't fatigue. And so that would seem to be maybe one of the mechanisms. That's just, I, I haven't thought about it more than when you yeah, said I th I, Yeah, I think that's probably the primary mechanism. I think there's some interesting things going here, right? So you've got the carbon plate. You've got a full, full length carbon plate. You've got a two centimeter, four foot, whatever it is. And Puma's is slightly different than Nike's, but whatever that, uh, you know, a piece that they've got in the four foot. So essentially you've got a, a five foot 10 sprinter is now six foot. You've also, you know, uh, and this is where it's, it's slightly different. If you look at the difference between the Nike, Nike spike and the Puma spike, the Nike uh, spike doesn't have any sort of heel at all where the Puma has a little bit of a heel. So what on a, you know, as we strike the ground four foot first and the heel comes down towards the ground, the, the, the rear of the Puma spike will be hitting the ground probably more times than not, where the Nike won't. So the Nike spike, there's a little bit more elasticity now on the Achilles tendon. And I feel like it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the course of time, whether athletes are able to you know, really handle the increased loads on their, on their uh, posterior chain, you know, you know, mostly the, the Achilles. We saw some mm. kind of funky things happen at NCAAs, for example, where athletes have just had these missteps and not be able yes. to catch themselves. Yeah, I so that was, I'm not sure. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. But we didn't really see that in the Puma because the Puma's got a little bit of a, of a, of a raised heel as well. So it'd be interesting <laughs> to see where all that goes over the course of the next two, two three years. Would you, short answer, even one word if you, if you could, would you rather have them or not, the shoes in the sport? No, I'd rather not have them. Okay, yeah. They're on the same page. Oh, yeah, fascinating, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I'd rather not have them. Yeah, yeah. It, it, skews, it, it skews the performance of the athletes, doesn't it, at the end of the day? Because of our technology, really, not about sport. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And I, I understand that there's, you know, there's, um, there's always going to be technological advancements, but I think we need to do a much better job of, of setting a bar where those advancements can and cannot pass. And I think World Athletics has dropped the ball massively on this. Massively. Yeah, I agree. 100%.
Sheikh Mavanin, thank you very much for your time. Olympic coach and CEO of Alsis, uh, thank you very much for all of the stuff that you've uh, told us today. It's been fascinating just chatting to you. And uh, best of luck with your athletes in Tokyo. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.